0: Matthew chapter 13, we're going to be beginning in verse 44, something that we call uh, kingdom parables. And once you find that, if you would, out of honor, in honor of God and His Word, let's stand together as I read these. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 44. <clears throat> let's hear the word of the Lord. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure, hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is God's word. Amen and amen. You may take a seat. We've heard long parables. We heard the parable of the two lost sons or the story of the prodigal son, and that's the longest parable that Jesus told. These are among the shortest, and so we've got a twofer today, twofer parable on the morning. And these two stories are told in what is in the middle in the book of Matthew as what is called uh, the kingdom parables. The kingdom of God parables are parables that are explaining what is the kingdom of God. The central message that Jesus comes to teach when he shows up, he says the kingdom of God is at hand. And one of the big questions is what is the kingdom of God? Or or to put it another way is the kingdom of God is like the reign of God, that God has certain characteristic sensibilities, that God has certain things that he gives in a kingdom when you collect taxes, because all kingdoms collect taxes. I don't know if you knew that, Um, but all kingdoms collect taxes. But the question is, according to the sensibilities of that kingdom, what do those resources go towards? What are the sorts of things that capture the attention of the king as he reigns? And if the kingdom of Rome is here, then they have certain things they do. But if the kingdom of God is at hand, then what is that like? What sort of things win the day in that kingdom? How are decisions made? What are priorities? And when we ask that question, what is the kingdom of God? What's God's reign on this earth like? Jesus tells, in Matthew chapter 13, he tells a string of parables, some of these might be familiar, the parable of the soils or the sower. The sower goes out to sow, and a seed lands on four soils. That's one of the ways the kingdom of God is described. We looked at one of these parables, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares, that an enemy comes and sows tares among the wheat, but you have to wait till the end before they get separated out. When I came as a pastor and we were talking about what is the path forward? One of the parables we looked at in this section was the parable of the mustard seed. The par and really the mustard a mustard seed is a weed, but in- and you plant it. It's a super small seed, but over time it starts to. It's an invasive species, and it's and it's, co- it's so weird. The kingdom of God is like a weed you can't get out of your garden. Small, it's small, but it gets pervasive. And it's not, like, it's, not like a, it's not like an oak tree where, I always think of that seed like it's an acorn that turns into a big oak tree. It's not, it's like, a, it's like this really tiny seed that becomes an invasive weed species. That's what the, king, the kingdom of God, the reign of God is like that. It's not as triumphant maybe as we thought. Then these two parables, the treasure buried in the field and the the pearl of uncommon value, and then he ends the parable with with the parable, the kingdom of God is like a net that's cast for fishing. And it brings in all kinds of fish. Some are good to eat, some aren't so good to eat. So here we have this idea that what is God's reign like? And we have these two parables. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack these parables a little bit today. I want to look at what do they have in common? What are they different? And and what do they tell us about the nature of God's influence and God's reign on this earth right now and in our own lives? What does this mean for us? How do I know if I'm in the kingdom based on these parables, these stories, So let's take a look. I hope you've been been enjoying these stories. I hope they've been finding their spot in your heart as we go through this summer. But let's look at the first of these, the parable of the hidden treasure. Look at verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and then covered back up. He he re-hid it. And then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and he buys that field. Now, here's the deal. When Jesus is telling this story, sometimes parables are, um, are unrealistic, right? Sometimes parables are unrealistic. Like last week, we talked about the guy who goes to, down to hire day laborers like five times in one day. That probably wouldn't have happened that somebody did that, but it, it makes the point, right? It's, it's a realistic setting, but an unrealistic action, okay? Here, in this parable, this is a realistic, this is a realistic possibility, Okay, that buried treasure or hidden treasure was something in the ancient world that there were a lot of stories and a lot of uh, a lot of uh, fables about. And one of the reasons for that is that there was there were no banks or safe deposit box boxes in the ancient world. If you had something of value, right, you would take it and you would put it somewhere in your house, right? You would you would find a place that you could keep it safe in your house but if you lived in Israel in the ancient world or you lived in the Mediterranean region in the ancient world every few generations you would have a a, a, a kind of a rival kingdom that would that would come up out of nowhere, whether it was the Egyptians coming from the south, or whether it was the Assyrians coming in from the north, or the Babylonians coming in from the east, or the Romans landing with their, their fleets on your shores, you would have some invading army every few generations that would come and kind of pillage and plunder their way through the land. And when armies would do this, look, armies don't do this just because they want the land, they want the wealth of the land. And so if you had anything of value and it was in your house, you would get, you know, here are the Persians, here are the Babylonians that are coming through and whether they're going to come and raid your house, they're going to look for anything of value. And so what you would do is you would find places, hidden places, and what you would do, and this is actually, you can, if you're lucky enough, you might still find a hidden cache of something in Israel today. So, like for example, what you would do is you would take you would take a pot, usually maybe something about this high, okay, this round, and you would dig a hole, and you would bury the pot into the ground with just the lid above the ground. So that you could you could then you could go and you could you could lift up the lid, you could look, and it would go down maybe like uh, two feet or so, and you could put whatever was valuable in there, and you could cover it up, and you could hide it. But that's how you would hide. Buried treasure in Israel. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in 1946, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls in, in Qumran, out in the desert, all these caves. I mean, you go out there today, there's, there's hundreds and hundreds of caves. But um, this shepherd boy, he was looking for a sheep that had gone up, and like, he wasn't exactly the good shepherd because he was trying to get the, the sheep down by throwing rocks at it, right? No, that's, that's not the good shepherd, okay? But he throws one into this cave and he hears a sound like a crashing pot. He's like, what the heck? So he goes up there and he finds the first cave, Q1, uh, Qumran, Cave 1, and he finds this this cave and all these scrolls in there. This Bedouin kid finds all these scrolls. And these scrolls were dated back to the first century. They had been hidden for 2,000 years by someone who buried treasure, something they didn't want taken, so what they did was they hid it. Now, the, the sad thing about buried treasure, the sad thing like about the Qumran community, 12 caves later, 12 caves later, and they found all of these scrolls, is that back when these were all hidden, everyone who knew about them, everyone who tried to hide them, they were all slaughtered. And this is kind of the nature of buried treasures if someone hides it and then they die or anyone who knows about it die it's just there as late as 1998 1998 night i mean think about this 1998 in the Judean wilderness they found a pot it had it had pounds of silver coins in it it was buried in the 1st century 2,000 years, so this story, that, this image that Jesus has, this would have been stock for the ancient world, that if you were a day laborer, and you were working in a field, you might find something, you might find this lid, you're like, oh my gosh, what is this, and you look down, and there's, some, there, there's treasure, there's something right there, and so Jesus uses this story, this, this, what would have been common, maybe not common, but there certainly are a number of things like, it was not beyond the scope of possibility that someone could come upon buried treasure. Even today in Israel, I mean, Bedouins are scurrying and, and archaeologists are scurrying over the countryside in Israel looking for stuff like this, finding a cave that no one had ever found. I mean, I, there's part of that. It's like Indiana Jones, right? You know, this is why, you know, you put on your hat and your whip and go for it. I don't know, whip. I, didn't, I don't bring a whip to my Israel. I don't think they let it in past customs, but all right. You get the idea, okay? So with invading armies sweeping through, buried treasure would have been somewhat common. And then this person might be a laborer walking through the field, maybe finding a shortcut of some kind, perhaps working in a field, plowing and running into it. It doesn't really say, but they just found this treasure. And what they do is they they look at it. Oh my gosh, there's treasure. Okay, they re-hide it. And then they go off, they raise enough money to purchase the field in which it's in in order to make the treasure the field and then thus possess the treasure. Okay, we're going to talk about that process (coughs) in just a second. Are you guys with me? So it is something like even today you might like if, if you had, if you were looking at a house and you like opened a cabinet and you found like a bunch of cash, Right? You'd be like, um, well, if I, if I just stuff this in my, cat, I, I don't know how I could take all this, so maybe what I had to do is I had to buy the house, formally procure the house, and then I'll be able to own the treasure that is within it. So anyway, that, that's the idea behind this first parable. All right, second parable. A lot of similar elements in the second parable, but also some differences. Okay, 1345, let's look at it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. All right. Now this parable might not sink as deeply home for us today because if you think about what is the most valuable gemstone today, diamonds probably, like really, really clear Uh, diamonds. But in the ancient world, the most valuable gemstone, it wasn't gold, it wasn't diamonds, it was pearls. And probably because pearls were the least accessible gemstone around. Like, if you wanted a pearl, what did you have to do? You got to hold your breath for a long time for one to get down all the way. And it wasn't, you couldn't just dig into a mountainside and find these resources, okay? Uh, you, had to, you could either go to the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean, but these were used, pearls, pearls were, uh, the, uh, were fished up by divers. They were used for adornment, particularly necklaces. Single pearls in the ancient world were known to fetch really high prices. For example, Julius Caesar is said to have presented the mother of Brutus a pearl worth essentially about $100,000, uh, six million sesterces, okay, Cleopatra was said to own a pearl worth 100 million sesterces, which is about $1.5 million. One pearl. One pearl. I should say one pearl. However big, you know, what's the size of the clam, whatever it is. But all this to say, pearls, pearls were the bling of the ancient world. Like they were the most valuable gemstones. And so pearls then became like if you had a favorite child, you would call them your pearl. Or, like in Jewish literature, a good piece of wisdom was known as a pearl. Or we might say, like, that's a great, a pearl of wisdom, right? Like, these are ways that we, we talk about um, pearls. But even today, that's a little lost on us because pearls might not, there's, you can fake it, like, even, but, but diamonds have probably replaced pearls. Has the most dominant or most valuable gemstone. But in Jesus' day, uh, pearls were the most valuable. The Greek word for pearl is the word margarites, the word margarita. The margarita is a pearl. That's another sermon. That's a different sermon than what we're preaching today. All right, thank you, everybody. So you have a merchant, you have a merchant that is seeking, probably a traveling merchant that um, would have been someone of some net worth. If you were someone who traded in pearls, I love this story because you have a guy wandering in a field, maybe a day laborer, and Jesus tells a story, the kingdom of God is like this day laborer, but he's also, the kingdom of God is also like this this really uh, wealthy merchant who trades in the most valuable commodities of his day. So the idea behind him coming upon a pearl of great value, a pearl of uncommon value, is that a merchant found a pearl from one of his sources with no flaws and was uncommon, and he found it, and having been someone who understands this and knows the pearl industry, he sees it and he wants to procure it for himself. Probably considerable size, uncommon quality. All right. So what, how does this, what is, okay, we get it, we get it. How is this like the kingdom of God? How is this like the kingdom of God? And there are some things I just, I want us to reflect a little bit on this. One of these parables um, for me has become, has been a very central parable for me as I understand my own journey To faith and my own valuation of Jesus one of these has become very central to me and really if if I were to think everybody's got kind of their origin story you know and there's there's a story that kind of governs that one of these images um, for me definitely um, hits that but here's a couple things just as we think about what is the kingdom of God like how can the reign of God be like these stories okay so here's I'm going to give you like three things that give us a sense about what the kingdom of God is like. And maybe this will be true in your own stories. You reflect back on your understanding of God's reign, of the kingdom of God, of the value of Jesus. You have no rival. You have no equal. Yours is the name above all names. Like When you came to that realization, perhaps one of these things might be true. And if that's the case, that gives us a sense of the kingdom of God. Of God the reign of God how God goes about doing his work and one of the things about the kingdom is the idea that the kingdom of God is about discovery the kingdom of God is about discovery in both of these parables there's someone who discovers something better yet in both of these parables Somebody, one, these people stumble onto something they were not expecting to find. They stumble on, there's a sense of discovery. And with discovery, there's always a hint of grace. You're not looking for it, but you stumble onto it. There's discovery, but there's always this sense in the kingdom of God that there's an unseen hand. That is moving you towards something that you didn't know you needed. There's an unseen hand that is guiding you towards something that you didn't even know you were going toward. That God puts something in front of you and you almost trip over it, but once you discover it, there's something about it that catches your attention that you realize it has more value than you had thought. You hadn't even been on your radar before, and now you're selling everything because of this discovery. And with discovery, like we said, there's always a hint of grace. You, just, you happen to look in just the right place. You were at the right place at the right time. I don't know how many of you might have a story like that. Or as you think about, uh, Kelly's dad has written some um, some memoirs and talking about his own faith and even um just as he is is reflecting on his life he's talking about you know this one person he i remember him we we went on a a little family vacation and a, a um a family reunion and he was just reflecting on if i hadn't met this person then we wouldn't have gone here and we, we trace it all back and like I would have never met Kelly and I like all of these things and he just, he, he like reverse engineered this to like this was the moment. I met this person and they moved us here and we went there and all these things to look back on this invisible hand and there's a beauty, there's such a beauty in discovery, isn't there? Being in the right place at the right time. I don't know what your story's like but maybe that's part of your story. There was someone in the right place, at the right time, saying the right thing. And it could be, maybe you can explain it as coincidence, but you know that God was behind it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God is about discovery. God leads us to treasure and pearls. You know, in the moment, we don't always see it, right? In the moment, we're like, I don't even know how I got here. and then, But on reflection, you're like, you're like, oh, oh, God was at work, right? You, in hindsight, it becomes clear. In many ways, that's what the kingdom of God is like. It's about discovery. At the same time, if, if, so the first thing is discovery. The second thing is this, because discovery has a little bit about it, and I think if you've experienced God's work in your life, if you've experienced even God in this world, you also note that with the kingdom of God, what's the kingdom of God like? There's a hiddenness to the kingdom of God, isn't there? Like there is a, a mystery and a wonder and a hiddenness like, what is God doing? Like what, it, it, it's not a treasure that you had to find it, you had to, you had to look at it, you might have run into it, but you had to find it, it was hidden. The pearl had to be found, it had to be discovered. And God's reign oftentimes is hidden. God's sensibilities and the value of those sensibilities is oftentimes to us hidden, that it's counterintuitive to us, is it not? Like loving your enemies or forgiving someone. Like those are not things that come natural to us. The value of those things are hidden until we actually discover the value of them. And we realize like, Man, my unforgiveness towards this person is not hurting them, it's killing me. And I discover the value of that, but it's hidden, it's, it's counterintuitive. I would rather fuel my life on anger and resentment. That feels so much better. And we laugh, but it, it does. Like intuitively, we're like, why can't I just be angry at these people? Why can't I not just fuel my life on anger? Because it will kill you. And Jesus, and that's... There's no wonder that Jesus would have said, Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you. It's counterintuitive, it's hidden. The kingdom of God is hidden, but God will graciously reveal the value of this hidden and underestimated wisdom. It's like the mustard seed, right? The mustard seed is small. And you don't really realize how significant it is until it starts to spread and you start to realize, oh, well, this is, this is really something. This is something significant. And then all, so this idea that it's hidden, but then eventually revealed. So the kingdom of God, what is the kingdom of God like? It's like discovery. There's, a, there's a, always a hint of discovery when God teaches us something. That's why I love God's word. I, can, I read God's word. I feel like I find something new on every page. I've been reading my Bible for a long time. I find something new and interesting on every page. There's always a sense of discovery because God is like that. God will reveal things to us in time, over time. There's discovery, but it's hidden. It's hidden. The third thing about the kingdom of God, not it, it, it's, it, there's about discovery, there's hiddenness about the kingdom, and we've, we've experienced that, but there's also this other thing in both of these parables, in both of these parables, Those who make the discovery of the hidden thing, they see it for what it's worth and they make a very strange investment. And this might be where the parables, it's a realistic setting, but it might be an unrealistic business practice. Where Jesus, this is the turn in the parables, and that is this. They sell everything. They sell it all. Whatever used to be valuable to them, whatever they had, whatever possessions they had, they liquidate to get what? This one thing. <laughs> this one thing. There's a phrase in both of them. There's a phrase in both parables. It says, and it says essentially this, the the tenses of the verbs change, but it says this, he went and sold everything as much as he had and bought it. It doesn't just say, it doesn't just say he went and sold everything and bought it. It says he went and sold everything as much as he had and bought it. Whether it's about the, the, the field or whether it's about the pearl he went and sold everything and for emphasis as much as he had just, as, just in case you were wondering if it was part of whatever it was or all of whatever it was it was as much as he had and he makes this purchase now i always wondered i always wondered why the man who found the treasure didn't just take it come on everybody why didn't he just go down and be like, and then, and then run off? Why not? Now, there's a, there's a couple of things. One, Jesus might just be making a point, but in rabbinical literature, in rabbinical literature, there were regulations about if you found something, what you could take and what you had to like, you had to, you had to uh, pr- uh, what was the word that they used? That you had to actually um, declare. So like if you found, a, if you found coins, and it was a stack of coins. They had been stacked. You found coins that had been stacked. You had to say, hey, does anybody belong to these? But if you found coins and they were scattered, you could just pick them up. So the rabbis had rules about all this stuff. They actually had rules. They actually had rules if you bought a field which rocks were supposed to stay in the field, and which ones you were that the seller was able to keep. You probably have this even as you sell a house or you rent a house. Like there are things that are if it's affixed to the wall, it's got to stay. But if it's not affixed, you can take it down. Like there's rules about all this stuff. And what one of the things about that if there was a treasure, you would have to go through the process of well, who owns the land? Are there are there family rights to this? But if you were to actually by the field, and nobody was like, "Well, hey, I'll sell you the field, but I got to get the treasure out first, Right? Then you could say, "Well, I'm not really interested in the field." Um, but but if no if people were like, "Well, yeah, I don't I don't know who owns the field, or you know, you're welcome to the field." And there's you know that's that's it. But once you procured the whole field, you legally were able to procure the treasure that was in the field. So there were <laughs> there were rules about all of this stuff. But the point I. I Aside from these rules, and Jesus might not be interested in the rules, the point of the parable is that the man makes a formal commitment to the treasure. He formalizes his interest. It's not simply a casual, if I find it, I'll take it. He's like, no, 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 no. I'm going to formally, I'm going to liquidate everything I've got in order to get this field and thus the treasure that is in the field and we don't know what the treasure is we don't even know we don't know if according to our standards the value of everything he owns is equal to the value of the treasure and this is an interesting thing once you get to the the pearl you're like well if he sells all his other pearls to buy this this one pearl like doesn't that sound like a bad investment doesn't that sound like putting all your eggs in the same basket? This is where we get to the merchant. Why didn't, and I guess this is the other thing, Um, why didn't the merchant haggle to try to get the price down? I mean, what kind of pearl merchant just says, hey, um, what do you want, you know, what do you want for the pearl? Well, I, you know, I want this amount. Well, how about this amount? And you try to, you know, look, you've all bartered before, right? You've all, you've all bargained for something before. It's like, well, here's the offer, here's my offer, and we're going to meet somewhere in the middle. And, and this idea, why didn't the merchant just haggle? He's just like, name your price. As a matter of fact, don't even name your price. I'm just going to sell everything I've got, and I'll buy it for that price. It's a horrible business idea. I mean, how about diversify? What about putting all your eggs in one basket? Like, this is a horrible strategy. No buy low, sell high. It's just buy high and hold. Which is interesting for the merchant. The value of his pearls is what he can get for them. But in this case, he just wants to make this pearl his own. It's not about, it's a great investment, I'll get it and then sell it again and reclaim the value. It's just, I just, I, all I want is the pearl. It's counterintuitive. We want the most return for the smallest investment. This guy just says, I want to grossly overpay for this field or this pearl. But the point is, It seems like the point that Jesus is making is what is the kingdom of God like? It's that whatever the treasure is, the cost is everything as much as you have. What is the kingdom of God like? What's the reign of God like? What are the sensibilities that win the day? When people discover God's kingdom, when people discover that God is at work in this world, that God has invited them into his kingdom, they give everything as much as they have. They don't haggle. They don't try to buy low and sell high. They just give everything. They simply do everything in their power to procure whatever it is because they recognize the uncommon value and quality of the treasure or the pearl. You know, there's one more telling uh, note, uh, just a, a clue in really the first parable. It's not in the second parable. It's not in the pearl, but it's about the field. And look back in verse 44. Look back in verse 44. There's one little. There's one little thing in this parable that gives us some sense of the strangeness of this investment strategy and why this person, this man, does this. Verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all he had and buys that field. In Greek, it literally says, from the joy over it, or from his joy joy, he goes and sells everything as much as he has. Why does he do it? Why does he liquidate everything? Why do his priorities change so much? And the answer here is that he had experienced a great joy, and he made a decision out of the joy that he was experiencing. Have you ever been around someone who makes decisions just for their own joy? They don't always make sense, do they? Sometimes you might be wondering, like, why is that person dating that person? From the joy, whatever the joy is, like, why is that person moving to that place? It might not make any sense because they're doing it out of a joy, something that has happened. Why are you making that investment? There's something personal, there's something joyful about it. Actions done from joy are typically difficult to explain to others. They're really awesome to feel and to do ourselves, but they're oftentimes very difficult to explain to your financial advisor or to your friends. Have you ever experienced this, that people just don't understand what you're doing? This, it's an investment sin to put all your eggs in one basket. It's just bad business unless the opportunity calls for such risk. And even then, you might be looked at sideways by the people around you, but it's the sort of risk that a person takes on the strength of internal conviction that whatever may come, this is well worth it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. The kingdom of God takes us to the end of our investing and business senses. It says overpay and don't diversify. The reign of God is not a means of getting ahead. The reign of God is the treasure. It's not a means to the treasure. It is the treasure. Joy makes us do strange things. As I think back on my discovery of the kingdom of God, and I've told this story before, but I'm gonna, I'll, it, it deserves reiteration. Um, I grew up Roman Catholic, um, and I, when I first heard the gospel, it was at a Christian rock concert at this church that I was, um, that my friends had taken me to, this youth group, um, and I was going through confirmation classes at my Roman Catholic, um, the diocese that I was at, and, um, and my mom was Roman Catholic. My dad had, had converted to Roman Catholicism, um, in his um, in his teens, his late teens, when he was in the Air Force, and so they were very excited about me being confirmed, and um, <laughs> and and I told my mom like, um, hey mom, I I want to go to this church, and I don't want to be I don't want to be confirmed, and you know if you grew up Roman Catholic, the answer to that was hey just get confirmed, and then you can do whatever you want, okay? Now I don't know what your experience was like in in the Roman Catholic Church, and that might not be the case. I don't want to misrepresent, but that was what I was told. And um, so I was like, well, if I'm going to go to these classes, I'm at least going to tell these people about what, was, what happened over here. I heard this at this rock concert, and I, like, I went to this youth group, and it was all, like, so I was like, okay, I'm going to go. And so I'm 14 years old, and I'm, I'm in this room with all these other 14-year-olds that don't want to be there because it's confirmation classes. Um, sorry, no, if you've, if you've been through, you know what I'm talking about. But I'm in this room, and like, I'm trying to explain. I said, okay, so here's my chance. I've just experienced, I've, I've just found this treasure I have just found this treasure, and I was so pumped, and I'm going back here, I'm this 14-year-old kid, and I'm like, so, so then I'm trying to explain to all these other 14-year-olds, like a youth group event, like going to youth group, and I don't know if you've ever tried to do this, but going to youth group and trying to explain it to somebody sounds pretty goofy coming out, so I'm like, I'm talking to all the and I'm like, hey, we, we went, we went to this place, and we went to this room, and like, we played these games, like, we played this game, where we like, blew up this balloon, we played like, foosball, and we blew this balloon around, and I'm like, and as I'm saying it, I'm like, I can just see the fate, like, no, no response, and I'm so pumped up, and then, and then we sang some songs, and like, nothing, and then like, this guy got up, and he started talking about God, and it was just like, like, nothing, like, they had not experienced anything. And I'm trying, I mean, I'm, try, I'm trying to explain to you. Like, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explain to this. And when I was done, somebody said something particularly demeaning to me. Like, that is the lamest thing I've ever heard. I'm a 14-year-old. I'm in a room with other 14-year-olds. I'm outnumbered. And look, I wish I can say that I have always... I wish I could say that there were, like there are times in my Christian life that I've been intimidated to share my faith. There there have been times in my Christian life where I've been intimidated. And I will tell you this, that was not one of them. I was so pumped up. I was so joyful about what I was found. I was like, I could give a rip what any person in this room thinks. I'm going back and I'm digging up the treasure that I found. It's for me. I could care less what you think. Now, I wish, I wish that feeling, I wish that joy can always stay with me. There, there is a sense in which our joy comes and goes over time. David prays, renew to me the joy of my salvation, right? But in that moment, there was so much joy, I was like, see ya, like I'm going here and I don't care. I could care less, because the kingdom of God is like a man who found a treasure, and once he found it, he re it, and he liquidates everything. He changes his priorities, he changes his friendships if he needs to, and he goes to formally procure what belongs to him. He will make sure it belongs to him, and I made sure that that belonged to me because of the joy look there's a lot of reasons to love jesus there's a lot of reasons to come to jesus right truth he is the way the truth and the life truth is a great reason to come to jesus look fear fear is, is is another biblical reason why people come to jesus that they're afraid of what is going to happen at the end of all things What's going to happen on the day I die? I mean, that, that, might, that might be fear. Or, or maybe there's a sense of guilt, like I have, there's a stain on me that I need to get off. There's a shame. Like these are all reasons, there's, these are all reasons in the Bible why people come to Jesus, why people embrace the kingdom of God, because it's true or they're afraid or they're guilty. But i got news for you. If you're in a community that is just about truth, or that is motivated only by fear, or is only motivated out of getting rid of their shame, you are going to live in a cold, angry community. And that's why the kingdom of God, yes, those things are true, but the kingdom of God is fueled by joy. That you might see the truth of what it is, but I would say this, the the kingdom of God is about seeing the truth of it but also seeing the beauty of it. Seeing that this is something so valuable. I have to make it my own. I have to sell all the other pearls just to get this one. I've got to get, I've got to change my entire priorities just to get this field. Just to have The treasure. Look, Christianity, Jesus is true. There's such thing as guilt and and the the work of Jesus expunges that guilt. And there is is real reasons to be afraid outside outside of Christ. But the reason, the kingdom of God is like a man who for the joy makes this decision. And look, if, you, if you've never put your faith in Jesus, and even today you're like, I don't know, I don't know what it is, but there's something about what you're talking about that is bringing out some serious joy in me, then look, I, I think what's happening is that the Holy Spirit is saying, yeah, I think you're seeing the value of this, that you came and you realized that you found there's a treasure here. Like a 14-year-old kid who realizes there's a treasure at that church, there's a treasure in that youth group, there's a treasure in that Bible, there's a treasure there, it's time to go dig it up. It's time to go make it your own. And if that's you, I, I would love to talk to you and just talk through what, that, what that's like. Now, but perhaps you're here and you're more like me, that you've experienced time in your life where joy has come and gone and maybe come back and maybe gone again and it wanes, like it's this tide that kind of comes in and out. And maybe even leaning on the idea that this is true, or that I don't know what it is, but, or there's anger, whatever it is. And truth, because being all about truth can oftentimes bring out a lot of anger in people. And I think what we need to do is we just need to pray like David prayed in Psalm 51 Restore to me the joy of your salvation restore to me the joy of your salvation. Look, I don't I don't know where you're at. I but maybe it's just this morning it's just time to close your eyes and to say, look, I've been angry. I love Jesus. I want to love Jesus. Sometimes wanting to love Jesus is enough like whether you, CS Lewis said sometimes our best havings are our wantings. Like he, cuz he says, I don't always love Jesus, but I want to love Jesus. And wanting to love Jesus is almost is That'll get you there. That'll get you to loving Jesus, right? So even if you're just like, look, I want to love Jesus. I want joy. I don't know if I've got it, but I want it. Let's just pray together. Like, just say it quietly to yourself. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Just say it. Just say it to yourself. Just quietly in your own heart. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I'll tell you this, God will be faithful to answer that prayer. And when he does, you'll, the reason you'll know that he does is your priorities will change. You'll be like, I don't really need that. I don't really need that. What I really need is this. I gotta go, I gotta dig up the treasure. I, I, I don't know if I've been digging up the treasure lately. And I gotta go dig up the treasure. It's mine. It's for me. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we come this morning because we oh gosh. Father, we need you. You are our treasure. You are our father. You, you come to us. You are not, you're not like the cop behind the billboard just waiting for us to speed by so he can flip the lights on and catch us. You're the Father who has His arms open, who rejoices that we come. And Father, if we've been thinking about You in any way other than just You and Your goodness and greatness, we just want to repent of that and we just want to pray, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Would You give us the joy, even the joy that we had in the early days of our faith. We know that we, we're more mature and we're more measured, but we pray, we ask that that joy would be part of our story and part of our life and part of even our decisions today. that we would just see you as the treasure you are. Gosh. The pearl of uncommon value. Oh, Lord, just renew our hearts, renew our the joy of our salvation today. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.